Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest speaker, Professor Muir, to present to us this morning, Kroesar Ken. Tegwin, nice to see all your colleagues here today. Uh, I'm just going to share my screen with you just now. And uh, it's a pleasure, as I say, to be here. And when Tegwin signed me up for this, uh, she suggested that I should be provocative and thought provoking at the same time, which I hope I will be able to do. Uh, just as you have learned from Scotland, I think with some of the reforms, particularly to your curriculum, uh, we also are learning very much from yourselves. And I know that we have a very common link through Graham Donaldson, who I continue to work with and who's been very active uh, within Wales. So I'm not going to go into my report on uh, putting learners at the centre in detail, but uh, what I do want to do is to share with you some of the evidence and some of the arguments that uh, that led me to, to produce a report which went actually well beyond my remit, uh, uh, because I felt that what was happening at the time, not least with yourselves in Wales, but more generally and the post-COVID environment meant that we really needed to look quite seriously at the kind of uh, education system that we might expect for our children uh, and young people. So I, I've kept up to speed through Graham with what's happening in Wales, uh, obviously, as the former chief executive of the Teaching Council in Scotland, uh, I've kept up through the Education Workforce Council with uh, Hayden Thuellen, who's kept me up to speed with things. And interestingly, I shared a platform about a month ago with your previous minister, uh, Kirsty Williams. And we talked a lot about the action plan that was put in place in 2018. And, and words and themes like co-construction, cooperation, cross-cultural themes and, and cross-curricular themes and particularly cultural change came through very strongly, I felt, in some of the work you're doing and some of that's been reflected very much in what I'm doing in Scotland. I think, as you all know, and I'll use a football analogy since we were having a wee chat about football, as I said, Scotland has no interest in what's happening in the football since we're not there, but we're very much supporting yourselves in Wales. But I think we scored the first goal in terms of curriculum change going way back to 2008 when we introduced Curriculum for Excellence, which at the time was seen as being a very progressive approach to, uh, to, to a new curriculum, to, to thinking about a new curriculum. And I know that Graham will have talked about some of the lessons that hopefully you have learned from the mistakes we made in introducing this new curriculum. The idea of a continuous curriculum from three to 18, uh, a broad general education up to the age of 15, with a senior phase thereafter, a focus on interdisciplinary learning, uh, real agency in setting out a number of experiences and outcomes which were meant to be building blocks for the curriculum, and links particularly with further education in order to try and uh, offer parity of esteem between 
the traditional academic subjects and, and vocational uh, and technical subjects, with a very strong focus on some of these cross-curricular themes of literacy, numeracy, health and well-being. As I'm sure Graham will have said, uh, we made a number of mistakes, one of which was not sharing the philosophy of Curriculum for Excellence sufficiently well uh, with particularly practitioners on the ground. But what did come through very strongly were our four, what we called capacities, what you call four purposes. You'll see similarities, I'm sure, between our four capacities in Scotland and the four purposes that you have in Wales. Although when you scratch below the surface, there are a lot of the things that you have within your four purposes are actually missing or are only just touched on vaguely within those uh, four capacities. Things like ambition and creativity, uh, enterprise, uh, ethical aspects to the curriculum and the focus on health and well-being. These are all things that I think have, have, great, have gained in importance and significance since the time that we put curriculum for excellence together. And as I say, in looking at uh, successful futures, which Graham wrote, and which you're taking forward in Wales, I'm very interested uh, in, in learning some of the lessons uh, from yourself. So although, as I say, we might have scored the first goal in Scotland, I think we've been significantly overtaken, uh, not least by yourselves, but also by some other jurisdictions. As I said at the outset, what I want to do is try and share some of the things that influenced my thinking in preparing my report. And Michael Fullen and uh, Joanne Quinn, this report on education reimagined, uh, I felt was a very influential report uh, for me in that he talks about, they talk about the system having stalled. And I feel that's where we've got to in Scotland, or it's where we've got to over recent years. Uh, Reform, of course, has been high on all of our agendas, particularly uh, with yourselves. Uh, but as Quinn and Fullen point out, it's tended to be very narrowly focused on literacy and numeracy and what they call high school graduation. And one of the concerns I had and that came through very strongly from the discussions that I had with head teachers and with students themselves in primary and in secondary schools, the metrics that we use in Scotland uh, of high school graduation, as they call it, their examinations, has led to a very examination-driven system in Scotland. And it was, it was interesting talking particularly to head teachers in primary schools who felt that the upper primary school curriculum was being overly influenced by the examinations and the conditions and arrangements in the curriculum that were set by the qualifications body in Scotland, the SQA, and that filtering down into early secondary and even into upper primary. And for me, the comment about addressing the holistic needs of students in an unpredictable global society and the quality of learning being part of the focus really struck quite a chord. The catalyst for my report was an OECD report. Uh, like most OECD reports, it was it was fairly balanced. It probably was more positive than many of us uh, really felt to be true within Scotland. It talked about the philosophy of curriculum making, which lay behind CFE and which Mark Priestley, who's been working with many of you, will no doubt talk about in the, in the next of these uh, webinars. 
But it did point to the fact, and if you read between the lines of what's in that slide there, you know, it, it's design, the design of Curriculum for Excellence offers the flexibility needed to improve student learning further, which is really another way of saying uh, it actually needs a bit of a transformation. And that in, in, was really what began my engagement uh, with the Scottish Government, being commissioned to write a report based around our cabinet secretary's very clear statement, just as Kirsty William did, uh, Williams did way back in 2018, you know, clearly wanting reform, not just for reform's sake. And as I said, you know, I, I did look to Wales, given how far down the road you have come, for some of the ideas around what we might offer uh, within Scotland itself. Now, I know that all ministers want to be seen as being reforming ministers, want to have a legacy, but I I, I genuinely do feel that Shirley Ann Somerville, our, our cabinet secretary, is very genuine about the support that she's putting behind the need for significant reform in the Scottish education system. So my remit was relatively straightforward, you might imagine, replace the Scottish Qualifications Authority. We have a single qualifications body in Scotland, which has three functions. It's got an awarding function, an accreditation function, and its own regulation function. Uh, and there was a, a fair degree of concern being expressed about it having a regulatory function within the same organisation. The inspectorate, your equivalent of Austin, of Esten, moved uh, into Education Scotland way back in 2011. It used to be independent. I was asked to uh, move it back into uh, being an independent inspectorate and to reform the main curriculum support body, Education Scotland. I was also asked to consider the creation of a curriculum and assessment body. And I rejected that fairly quickly because for me, the most important thing that makes the biggest difference that will improve all of these policies around equality and diversity and closing poverty related attainment gaps is fundamentally what happens in the classroom and the importance of learning and teaching. So it was a very easy uh, decision not to establish a curriculum and assessment body. And many folk saw that uh, potentially as being simply an amalgamation of the qualifications body and the curriculum support body, Education Scotland. And that was never on the agenda. In Scotland, we have had a history of very fragmented change and these uh, developments, all of which are under, underway at the moment, uh, illustrate this. And it's been one of the concerns that I've had when I talk about cultural and mindset shift in Scotland. For me, it has to start with the government because our, our practice in relation to policy creation has tended to be too, too much top down and it's tended to be very fragmented. There are 10 directorates within Scottish government that impact directly on head teachers in schools, primary and secondary schools in Scotland. And part of the problem is they don't always talk to each other. And one of the exercises that I did was to ask primary and secondary head teachers to tell me how many extant policies impact on a day-to-day -day basis on your work as a leader of learning in your school. And the average in secondary was 40 and the average in primary was 34. And although my report and the 21 recommendations of it are part of the reform process, the first two recommendations were that we have a national discussion 
which, are, which is currently been led by Professor Alma Harris, who I'm sure you'll all know, and Carol Campbell, the Professor of Ontario, into trying, trying to establish uh, a consensual and compelling vision for the direction of travel in Scottish education. A year ago, we had a review of the tertiary sector in Scotland. What has fallen out of my report has been a review of the qualifications and assessment, which again, I know that you've been very heavily involved in. And then lo and behold, just recently, the Scottish Government announced a review of the skills delivery landscape. And there are lots of other reviews taking place. Part of the problem that we have had in the past is that too many of these reviews have been very fragmented. And as I say, one of the things that we've tried to learn, or we, we are trying to learn from the work you've done in Wales, is that reform has to be undertaken in a strategic manner. And uh, we're getting there, but it's certainly not perfect at the moment. I was very keen to listen to learners in terms of what they wanted, as well as practitioners. So as well as my own report, I produced a report which was the outputs of the consultations with children and young people, approximately 5,000 of them. Uh, I had a national uh, consultation with practitioners and other stakeholders, and that report is available on the Scottish Government website. And the right-hand report is a, a children's version of my report. Uh, some folk unkindly refer to it as the Janet and John version. But I thought it was important providing feedback, given the quality of feedback I got from children and young people as part of my consultation. And I'm showing you this because it stresses the point, this is actually my old school, the Noon Grammar School, that recently won the T4 World's Best School for Community Collaboration. Just as in Wales, there's a lot of very good practice that happens in Scotland, but it doesn't always get as well shared as it might. And in my report and in these inputs that I've been doing at various events, I talk about a bottom-up hierarchy, policy, not being formed from the top down, but being informed by the experts on the ground from the bottom up and, and being informed and changing on an ongoing basis to meet the requirements that, uh, that, 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 that face us all and as they change in a, in, in, a regular, in a regular way. So, as I say, there is a lot happening that's very good, but this particular statistic was a bit scary. The last evaluation of inspectors, which goes away back to 2018-19 pre-COVID, suggested that on our six-point scale, and I do have concerns about the use of grades, uh, and, I, and I found it interesting that the, the learning inspectorate report uh, making comment about the, the extent to which grade, grades have come to dominate inspections and, and how they can be quite troublesome. But if you take, take the, the view that anything less than good isn't good enough, then 40% of schools and probably 40% of children and young people weren't getting a good deal in learning, teaching and assessment. And I don't think that was good enough. And children and young people themselves, the kind of comments they were offering me didn't exactly fill me with enthusiasm either. And I've just picked a selection here the sorts of things that young people were coming back to me with from the conversations that I had, the various engagements that I had with them. And I was particularly taken with the goal should be happiness and not exam results. 
And one or two other comments uh, there about the relationship with, with teachers and, and various other things. This was a particular concern to me, this graph. This was from the consultation with children and young people. And in it, I asked the question, to what extent on a five-point scale do you think you're having the best possible educational experience? And as you can see from this graph, approximately a third strongly agreed or agreed. But more than a third, 36%, strongly disagreed or disagreed. And the other third in the middle uh, were quite neutral. And I think you can take from that what you want. But again, it begged the question, you know, what kind of curriculum and what kind of experiences are we offering the current cohort of young people? And how best do we ensure that the curriculum for the future matches the needs that, of, of themselves, but also of society as it changes? And talking to head teachers and teachers, you can see the kinds of things that were coming through there a strong plea for greater and genuine empowerment and the investment of time and resource not being with national organisations but very much at the, at the local and regional level. A strong desire in Scotland for politics, the politicisation of education, if possible, to be reduced. We're never going to get rid of it entirely. But anything that could be done to reduce the political bickering that has tended to characterise the education system in Scotland. Real concerns about the examination system. And this final quote from one head teacher who said that they get paid as a leader of learning, but they're nothing other than a leader of administration. And one or two other uh, comments as well. SCQF that's being referred to there is our Scottish Credit and Qualifications Framework, which is uh, it's actually a separate charity that, uh, that accredits awards, including SQA's uh, awards. But this whole notion coming through that we need to find a way in which we better recognise wider achievements of young people as opposed to the traditional metrics of examination and conferring value on all kinds of learning and not just the learning that is easiest to measure through examinations. And a lot of talk about young people wanting to see pathways that are, that are appropriate to them as they progress through schools and to recognise the learning that takes place really from early years right the way through primary. And one head teacher said to me, you know, we need to get away from this mindset that the learner journey only really starts in secondary when children and young people choose their subjects to study for examinations. I'll give you a second or two to look at this. This is a, a, an essay that the Royal Society of Arts, one of three actually that they produced, uh, Voices for a Future Generation. And Anthony Painter uh, sets out this scenario where he places himself in the year 2080 and looks back over his 30 years of life. And this had a very dramatic impact on me uh, as I was preparing my report. I think we would all agree that we hope none of that happens, but the reality is some of it is already. And it asked the question, how are we preparing the current generation of young people, the children that we have in our schools just now, and arguably also their children further down the road? 
How are we preparing them for a world that has changed hugely, not just as a result of COVID, although it's had a major impact, but a society that is already very different and in truth is likely to be very different uh, to the society that we, we, we perhaps knew even a short number of years ago. And it's not that we haven't been doing anything about it in Scotland. We have tended to be, be preoccupied with responding to and being reactive to what, what crosses our path. And the Goodison Group in Scotland and Scotland's Future Forum over the last five years have been doing a piece of work where they position themselves in the year 2030. And the premise is that Scotland is one of the leading education systems in the world. What needs to happen? in order to make it that way. And you can see some of the things, some of the messages that came through very strongly from this piece of work. And throughout the five years of work that we did on that, and Graham Donaldson was involved in it, as was I, the number of phrases that came through regularly in the discussions, flexibility, co-creation, inclusion, culture, the importance of culture, trust, relationships, creativity, and so on. And that had a, a, a major impact on what I framed up by way of my, uh, my report. And interestingly, Skills Development Scotland, which is a skills body in Scotland, which actually sits separate to Education Scotland, and there is an issue, talking about moving from the left-hand side, from learning that's based on a standardised, linear, kind of mass-produced, one-size-fit-all model, to learning that's adaptive and tailored to individual requirements, knowledge that is integrated and contextualized as opposed to being often disaggregated, and learning that, 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 that is driven uh, by or guided by what is required for individual learners rather than the system, what the system's needs are and what the institution's needs are. And in Scotland, and I'm sure it's the same with yourselves, you know, we have a large mass of resource in the middle ground between policy and practice, the sharp end where the experts are and the policy that uh, tends to be very top-down driven and some reorientation of the resources in that middle ground I see as being absolutely essential for the future. Other factors that impact on my report are things like technological change. Young people got used to digital learning, whether they liked it or not, and likewise with teachers during COVID. But if you look at what's available to young people, and particularly current generation of young people online, whether it be university courses or whether it be the likes of Khan Academy, and look at, look at the strap line, you can learn anything uh, for free, for everyone, forever. There are children and young people in your schools who will be looking at some of the lessons and activities that are available on these kinds of uh, platforms that will inform their learning. And in some cases, uh, and certainly some that I spoke to made it very clear uh, in a much more interesting way than they might experience within their school. And the other thing that we need to realize is students change. We're no longer dealing with the millennials of uh, Generation Y or even Generation Z We've got a new generation of young people in our schools. As it says there, Generation Alpha, a cohort that attaches great importance to high-level tech, but also to the environment and 
the societal impact of their behaviours. And the bottom quote, making it very clear that although each of those generations bring different characteristics and behaviours, the paradigm shift between Generation Z and the current young people who are beginning to come into our secondary schools is even greater than it's been in the past. And the important thing to recognise is they learn differently. You know, they're totally immersed in technology and the kinds of learning that they prefer aren't always the kinds of learning that are available to them in our schools. And the expectations that they have around a seamless, as it says there, personalised online experience with cutting ways in which to interact and communicate. These are the sorts of things that young people certainly fed back to me as, as leading to the kind of comments, some of the negative comments that they directed to the current education system in Scotland. Many of them I felt were very powerful. And of course, and I'm sure it is the same with yourselves, but in the last 10 years in Scotland, the number of children and young people in primary secondary schools presenting with an additional support need has increased from 10% to over 30%. I was told recently that the figure is now 33. And the average in Wales, which I looked up the other day there, is 25%. Now, your new rights-based additional learning needs system, I think, will go a long way towards addressing that. We have a report in Scotland that was written by Angela Morgan, uh, all our children and all their potential, but it's presenting real challenges with the presumption of mainstreaming continuing. And that's not going to be something that will change quickly in years to come. And how are we, how are we addressing that effectively within our schools? And then, of course, there's climate change. And you'll know yourselves, it's got implications for all of these things, uh, not least how we live in future society. And if society is influenced by education, and it certainly influences what we do in education, then we need to take cognizance of what that future society might look like. So there's a fair degree of crystal ball gazing as to what might be needed for the future. But there are a number of certainties that exist. And one of them, Ian Golden, the professor at uh, Oxford, spoke to an audience in Scotland a few years ago. You know, that although we're in this global environment, not, not only does it accelerate change, but it leaves folk behind. And Scotland and Wales are very similar in many ways in that we have a long history of industrial, heavy industrial decline based around heavy industry and the social and economic impact of that decline is still to be seen in many of our schools. So when we look to the future of the curriculum, what are the sorts of things that are likely to influence it? Uh, and I was very keen to look at a number of these areas in preparing my report. UNESCO report on future competencies, future curriculum in 2019, picked out a number of competencies, a number of uh, skills, dispositions, attitudes, which they felt were important to embed within any future curriculum making that takes place within our schools. But interestingly, this report from the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago, where they asked UK industry, business, commerce, what are the kinds of skills that you feel will be in greatest demand uh, over the coming 10 years? And the sorts of things that they're talking about uh, are things like analytical thinking, creativity, 
problem solving, critical thinking, resilience, emotional intelligence, you can see them all there. And the question I often ask is, to what extent are we building in opportunities for those skills and competencies genuinely to, to be developed within the curriculum? And many teachers are very good at doing that, but they're very risk averse. And certainly in Scotland, they're very risk averse because they don't want to deviate to any extent from what will be examined at the end of the day. And that's not a healthy position, I think, to be in. We've been fortunate in Scotland and we have an international council of education advisors who reported, uh, of, they've given a number of reports to the education system. Uh, Andy Hargreaves sits on that, uh, as does Alma Harris. And three things that struck a chord with me, the need to shift to professionally led educational improvement. They need to change the priorities to meet local and regional needs. And the need to empower those involved in the education system who, who are at the sharp end and who do the difficult job of teaching and learning on a day-to-day -day basis. You'll know that uh, Fulin uh, talked about the right drivers and the wrong drivers for improvement. And one of the themes that came through in a lot of the research that I looked at was the notion that we need to take much more seriously well-being and learning. And on the left-hand side, you've got the four right drivers or the right drivers for improvement, well-being and learning, social intelligence, equality, investments, and systemness, looking at the entirety of what impacts on the classroom on a day-to-day -day basis, as opposed to where we have certainly been in Scotland, looking at tiny bits of the curriculum and making change to them, are bringing in a myriad of of policies that don't necessarily cohere with each other and certainly don't provide uh, easy to understand direction to head teachers and to local authorities. And I was very taken with what Michael Fullen had written in, in, in a more detailed way around uh, the right drivers. And lying behind a lot of what he said, which is why I called my report, Putting Learners at the Centre, he talks about schools needing to be a place where children and young people feel good, not just about themselves, but about the person that they are becoming and have the opportunities to, to prepare themselves to thrive in what will be a fast changing and very different world to the world that we have just now. And I thought it really was interesting, uh, again, really just for reference here, you know, that we can no longer afford to separate well-being from learning. And I would go further than that and say that teacher well-being is also part of that. One of the things that struck me in Scotland when I was doing my research for my report was just how, how difficult teachers were finding coping, not just with COVID, but continue to find difficult coping with the aftermath of it. And all of the social and emotional issues that children and young people bring to the table and continue to do so. A couple of quick quotes here again. I found them quite uh, illuminating. Jack Ma, uh, the former chief exec of Alibaba, uh, very pointedly making the point that we need to change how we, ch how we teach our children. Otherwise, you know, we're going to be in big trouble. But also pointing out that we need to focus much more on skills that are uniquely human. It's about that human aspect and the development of children and young people as humans 
as opposed to preparing them to pass examinations. And bizarrely, Andre Schleicher, you know, at OECD, you know, OECD who have given us PISA, a very narrow range of three measures that many countries around the world have taken to be the metrics as to whether uh, an education system is successful or not. Andreas coming out saying, we need to go much further. We need to look at global competencies. And he suggests a number of open-mindedness, making the world a better place, et cetera, et cetera. And I was quite taken uh, aback when, when I read this particular quote. And of course, OECD are now beginning to realize that. They ran a, they ran a series of uh, assessments around global, global competencies a couple of years ago. And in fact, Scotland came out of that very well, although it was a much lower number of countries involved in it than there usually are. And this particular piece of work by uh, the charity Big Change and the Innovation Unit really caught my attention. Uh, you know, there's no identifiable end state to what we are going into, but we need an education system that changes with people. And that was very much what lay behind the thinking in my report. You know, how do we build a system that is change ready and adaptive as opposed to one that is a reactive system? I just want to share a couple of slides with you because it summarised for me, certainly in a Scottish context, where we are on the left-hand side, where we've tended to see change as an event, that it's something you do, that it's relatively short-term, it tends to be driven in a top-down way, and that those at the sharp end and local authorities and head teachers and others in schools are the recipients of that change, to the creation of a change-ready system. Because for me, one of the absolute certainties is that society will change at an even greater pace over the next 5, 10, 20 years. And that's the time scale over which I was thinking in, in the context of writing my report, that we need to be thinking about the, a vision for our education system in Scotland. So a change-ready system where the purpose of education is about ongoing transformation, that the success horizon and the metrics are much longer term and not simply the easy things to measure. And that the leadership is very much a collective responsibility that genuine empowerment exists within the system by, by and for the experts at the sharp end. And that teachers, head teachers, parents and others, particularly students, see themselves as having a role in agency, much more so than is the case just now. And again, a couple of other uh, suggestions as to how, or the characteristic features as to what a change-ready system might actually look like, one that's empowered, one where there's ongoing learning, uh, and so on. And one part, importantly, where central bodies facilitate uh, as opposed to judging and assessing compliance. And I was particularly pleased to read the report on the Learning Inspectorate, and I know that work's been taken forward with the new chief exec in Eston, uh, which is very akin to how I would see an independent inspectorate operating in Scotland. And again, go back to Michael Fullen, some suggestions here, you know, from what he has seen as being very traditional systems, and to some extent we have been a very traditional system in Scotland, to a system that actively encourages and promotes deep learning. And some of the characteristics of deep learning on the right-hand side there, 
you know, student-led learning that connects students to the real world, that builds relationships, not just within classrooms, but to families and community, where we encourage children and young people to be genuine inquirers and so on. And importantly, where technology isn't used for the sake of transmitting alone, that it's actually used to, to connect and to amplify learning. And you'll all recognize, I'm sure, uh, Fulham's six C's, that the, the kind of competencies, dispositions, attitudes, skills, call them what you want, that uh, he feels from the extensive research he's done that are required within curriculum making for the future. And many of those are difficult to apply metrics to. And for me, that's one of the reasons why within the Scottish vision, we need to recognize that these kind of competencies and skills and so on, young people develop through time from early years, right the way through. Having been chief inspector responsible for early years, I'm a great convert to it. And I do strongly subscribe to the adage that the six most important years in a child's life are up to the age of five. And we need to, we need to change the mindset and have a culture that values and recognizes the learning that takes place in early years in primary, much more so than we certainly do in Scotland. And as I said earlier, part of that is recognizing that the learner journey doesn't just start when young people are halfway through their secondary experience, that it starts right at the very beginning of the learning process. And one of the reasons why I wanted the Scottish Credit and Qualifications Framework to be part of the national agency, which is designed to emerge from the, from the ashes of Education Scotland, is to find ways in which that learning can be better valued and better recognised through potentially, I think, uh, a digital portfolio which teachers and young people, learners themselves, can keep on an ongoing basis. So, just to save you digging back into uh, Michael Fullan's report, I've given you the breakdown of the, 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 the kind of subset of skills and so on, and learning experiences that are subsumed within those, within those six competencies. What my report wanted to do was to remove some of the policy uh, that currently exists within Scottish government. So, elements of Scottish government around curriculum and qualifications and place that in a new agency, uh, a new national agency that would also bring in the Scottish Credit and Qualifications Framework so that it acts much more as a filter for policy and, and looks at what's happening on the ground from the bottom up to inform changing policy on an ongoing basis. To have a, rev a new qualifications and awarding body that didn't have responsibility for the secondary curriculum, that simply was responsible for creating the examinations, making the certification and awarding, and having its accreditation and regulatory functions elsewhere, and a separate and independent inspectorate that reports not to ministers, but to government, a non-ministerial office. I won't go through it, it's a lot of detail in this particular slide, but if you are at all interested, uh, you can have a look at the report. And I am due to come to Wales to talk at the ASCO conference in a couple of weeks' time, 
And if any of you are at that, I'm very happy to say a bit more. What I tried to do in my report was to set out a number of principles or a number of features that I think need to be considered seriously as we move into a very different kind of world that our children and their children will inhabit. This is a combination of things that we know uh, and things that, that need to happen. But I saw this as being a kind of ready-made kind of benchmark or already already made touchstone of the sorts of things that schools should be asking themselves and the system in Scotland should be asking itself about how we might create a vision for the future of education in Scotland. I just want to finish with uh, Donella Meadows uh, report uh, really interesting report that, uh, that I looked at, systems thinking, thinking in systems. And she talks about very often system change is applied at the bottom end of, of the leverage points, the things that are easy to do and easy to implement. So things like shifts in infrastructure and metrics and so on tend to, tend to dominate system change. Whereas what we need and where I see or where I think you've been going in Scotland is in, in Wales, unlike Scotland, is much more system change at the top end of this graph, shifting goals in beliefs, in values, in mindset and in culture. And we need to be in that position, I think, certainly in Scotland. And as I say, I think you're beginning to move in that direction in Wales. My view is that we need to move in this direction in order to ensure that learners currently in our schools and future learners, the children of children in our schools, have got the best opportunities to thrive. I talk a lot about cultural and mindset shift in my report. These to me are the things that probably need to change most around relationships, attitudes, values and behaviours. And the three main messages from my report, the absolute primary of primacy of focus on individual learners, and their different needs, their, learn their individual learner journeys. Looking at how we reorientate the resource that's available to education to provide a more place-based responsive support for teachers and practitioners who support learners learning. And then this redistribution of power and influence that reflects the principle of subsidiarity, much more so than is the case at the moment. I'll finish with Gilbert Chesterton's quote because I, I came across this as part of my reading and I, and I felt that this really sums up for me what we need to be thinking about. Education being simply the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to the next. What that means to me is that education, of course, has a huge impact and influence on society. But society as it changes also has to be reflected on the ongoing changes that we, made to, that we make to education. And we need to have a system that is genuinely ready for change and takes change on board on an iterative and ongoing basis, rather certainly than what we've had in Scotland, than lurching from one policy change to the next. I know this is a very implausible football analogy, uh, but I think Wales beat Scotland 6-1 in terms of where you are. I think we scored the first goal in creating Curriculum for Excellence 15 years ago. 
But I think we, I think we fell over ourselves in a number of ways in implementing and taking forward what was a very creative approach to curriculum change. But I think what you've done, and from what I've heard of changes in Wales, the initial engagement with practitioners to see what was feasible, the ministerial support, the successful futures report, the support that you got from Kirsty Williams as minister and cross-party support, the investment that was put into things like the Pioneer Schools, the creation of the National Academy for uh, Educational Leadership uh, and so on. Critically, the strategic approach, because it wasn't just the curriculum you were changing. Eston has changed. Uh, John Furlong's work on teacher education, really important. Uh, Hayden's work around professional standards, really important that change is seen in a strategic way. And the ongoing monitoring of that change through an independent advisory group, I see as being the, the, the means by which you're creating a very different and sustainable educational culture that we would certainly value having in Scotland. So as I say, football analogy, I know, and a highly improbable score, but certainly in terms of education, I think it's Scotland one Wales six. I know you're going to have a discussion, uh, and I simply added on this slide that if you feel in any way uh, that you want to use any of these materials uh, with your own staff, I've set out what I think are a number of questions that are fairly germane to reimagining any education system. And feel free, please, to, to use those in any way that you want. Thanks very much indeed, folks. And I look forward to the question and answer session in due course. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope the um, conversations in, um, in the rooms has been um, really fruitful and beneficial. Um, Ken, that was an extremely thought-provoking um, presentation. I really enjoyed it. And I know from the questions that have come through already, um, that um, it's it certainly uh, provoked a lot of sort of thought within those rooms, and I don't want to take any more um, of the the uh, the people with this is time. So we'll start with the questions, and I think the first question comes from the post sixteen sector, and that comes from Emil Evans. So I don't know if we can get Emil up on the screen. Great, Emil. Uh, what's your question? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Trevor. Yeah, yeah, Ken. Just in, very interesting in what you had to say. Your presentation. We had. Uh, um, that stimulated a really, um, really uh, vibrant discussion in our group. One of the the key element we talked about lots of things. We talked about the system. We had, we had primary through secondary through post sixteen. One of the questions w w for, for us, probably out out of all the issues we discussed, was: Did you think that? And it's my view that that as a nation, and I talk now about the UK. We are overly obsessed with qualifications. I say that in the context of having visited places like Finland, Denmark, where I see that you know far less of an obsession with gaining qualifications, and that's your only passport to success in life, in your career, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I talked to parents. I'm thinking last night I was at an open evening um, where I'm trying to sell vocational programs post 16. The majority of parents are just obsessed with GCSEs and A levels um, for their kids. You know, we are moving in the right direction. Certainly, I believe 
but there are parts of our system that, are, that have got a long way to go, I believe. Um, and that's from that perspective, my perspective from an FE, working in FE currently. So are we, are we overly obsessed as a nation with, with, with qualifications? Yes, yes, we are. And it's a really good question, Emily. And I, I've worked for a number of years in Finland. Uh, I've worked with the National Board of Education and the University of Helsinki. And I know quite a lot about the Scandinavian systems generally. Yes, we are. We're hugely examination driven. And as I said during my presentation, it's having a detrimental impact on the kind of learning that's taking place in early secondary and also in primary. And I think part of the paradigm shift that I think you're making in Wales, you'll know much better than I, but Part of the paradigm shift that we need to make in Scotland is to create a system where the mindset is that learning in all its forms is both recognised and valued. And particularly uh, from, from the point of view of the individual learner, who for some it will not be about getting GCSEs or A-levels or what, it will be progressing their learning in very small stages, sort of bite-sized chunks of progress that they themselves recognise but aren't subject to any metrics that we currently use. Now, that was why I wanted to show you the six Cs because, uh, from uh, Michael Fullen. Th these, are, these are difficult to measure, but do they need to be measured? From my point of view, it's about giving the opportunities in the curriculum for children and young people to develop those skills and competencies and attitudes and dispositions and so on. So you're absolutely right. And it's been one of the failings of our system. Uh, I don't know if you had the same difficulty when COVID was on in Wales as we had in Scotland. You know, we had a, a horrific time because uh, examinations couldn't take place. And, we, and we've been so dependent on examinations as being the sole metric of, of success. When I talk about mindset and cultural shift, though, Emil, uh, it's, it's, it's cultural mindset shift that has to happen at a whole range of levels. It's not just about yeah. Scottish government. It's not just about teaching profession. We need to educate parents to recognise that, 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 that learning in, in, in all its forms, whether it be formal learning through school or some of the learning that takes place out with school, you know, youth work being a good example of that, actually being valued and being recognised uh, uh, for the value that it brings to, to children and young people. So, so absolutely, it, it's, it's far too, the, the, the system, certainly in Scotland, is far too dominated by the number of hires you can get in a single sitting in, in S5. And part of the culture shift, part of that mindset shift has to be recognising and valuing much more than simple examinations. And that's why I'm so critical about OECD and PISA, you know, because it's a yeah. very narrow range of measures. You know, it's about reading, it's about uh, uh, science, and it's about maths. I'm not saying they're not important. They are up to a point. But for a young person who's got an additional support need, uh, it might just be the fact that they're able to come to school exactly. is, a major, yeah. is a major achievement. So I... I see attainment as a, as a subset of wider achievement. And it's one of the reasons why I feel that we need to have 
uh, and I think we've got the technology to do it, but some kind of digital e-portfolio that young people can keep or that teachers in early, early years, uh, practitioners, can begin to build from early years right the way through. And as children become more mature and they, 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 they are, they're able to recognise their achievements, then they take part in that as well. It was written into Curriculum for Excellence that there would be an achievement portfolio. But all that happened was folks started bunging lots of paper into a folder and it never, ever took off. But I think, I think if, if we can get the mindset around the fact that valuing wider achievement as opposed to simply recognising the, the simple metric of examination results, I think that would be a major step forward to what we've got from what we've got at the moment. Uh, uh, really, really interesting answer. And I, I know that's one of the issues that the, we are currently grappling with with Wales and uh, those insights are particularly useful when it comes to how we sort of um, structure our system here. Um, we're moving into the youth work sector for the next question. Um, so can I ask that um, Emma Chivers um, is put up on screen, Emma, as a, as a question. Emma, what's, what's your question? Hi, yeah, yeah, thank you. Really interesting and for me, very inspiring um, as a youth work practitioner, um, listening to your talk and your slide. And we had a really good discussion um, in um, our group talking about the, the challenges of um, formal um, formal qualifications and how people were quite scared to try some of the new innovative things, particularly in young people when they're nine, year 10 and 11. So we talked about the role of youth work and what youth work brings to this new um, new area, I suppose, or this new innovative and creative curriculum. And one of the things we wanted to ask you that leads really nicely on from the last question is, what role do you think the youth service can play in implementing the curriculum for Wales in partnership with schools? The, the simple answer to that, Emma, is that it's got the potential to bring an awful lot. Uh, but part of that mindset and cultural shift that's required amongst professional teachers as opposed to professional youth workers has to see the value in what youth work can bring. And I found it really interesting when I was doing my, my report, uh, Youth Scotland uh, uh, was an organisation that I had various meetings with. And, and I know from some schools where uh, young people are in, engaging in youth work activities and, and actually uh, gaining youth awards, some of which are, are recognised on the Scottish Credit and Qualifications Framework, some of which are not, but they all should be in some way, in my view, that these, these young people get a real buzz out of A, being involved in some of these youth work activities, but secondly, they see it as being part of the, the learning process even though it's not necessarily undertaken in a formal school setting. So part of that, part of that mindset shift and part of that cultural shift is about recognising and, and genuinely having respect for the value of these kinds of activities that youth workers engage. Very often the, the, the most challenging young people uh, in and that the learning that takes place in those contexts is something that is is given the kind of parity of esteem to what we currently give to well, in Scotland nationals and hires and your part of the world, the GCSEs and, 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 uh, and A-levels. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. And 
you know, we, we have uh, the language within your slides and presentation is very much the language that we've got within Youth Work has it, its own curriculum, its principles and purposes document. So I've shared that with some of my colleagues. So for me, thank you. It's been very um, thought provoking and inspiring and I'm looking forward to working with some of the schools perhaps to make some of these changes. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, Emma. I mean, I'm actually, I was, I was saying to uh, Tegwin and Charlotte and the, the Academy colleagues just before we came live to the question and answer session, I'm actually, I'm actually speaking at the uh, Community Learning and Development Conference in Edinburgh. I think it's next week. It might be the week after. I'm, I'm lost with uh, inputs these days, but... Uh, but the, the, the CLD Standards Council, for example, uh, exists in, in, in Scotland, but it's, it's not like a kind of regulatory body. It's much more a kind of supportive body. And, and, and over the years, I've given a lot of support to Marion Allison and our team uh, at the CLD Standards Council. So I, I see the value uh, and have for a, a good number of years, in fairness, seen the value of, of youth work and what it can bring to, to, to young people, as I say, particularly those for whom, you know, two or three A-levels or six or seven GCSEs isn't actually their territory. But the learning that takes place in those youth work contexts is just as important uh, to that young person. Absolutely. Emma, thank you very much for that yep. question. I'm really pleased that we've been able to bring in the youth work dimension because um, it's, it's, it's something that needs an increasing platform moving forward. I'm going to move um, to a slightly different area, Ken, now. That's okay. We've got a question from Simon, and he's got a question around um, the most important six years is from is up to five years old. So, Simon, uh, I won't take any more of your time. What's your question? Morning, Ken. The group I was in predominantly primary uh, primary phase um, practitioners, um, although we had a very interesting discussion about special educational needs and, and, and follows on from what you said about qualifications there, which is a different area. But we, we, we were very in agreement that the most important six years are up to the, the age of five. Um, but is there enough emphasis on child development at the early stages in our curriculum, particularly post-COVID, where a lot of our children are coming in, um, not reaching the milestones that perhaps they would have done before? Um, so do we value early years enough and this is different in Scotland. Yeah, I, th I think, well, you, you've you kind of answered it to some extent yourself there, uh, Simon. You know, I think COVID has had a detrimental impact on child development generally. Uh, is there enough emphasis on it? There probably never can be enough emphasis on it. Uh, I think one of the questions that I ask at the end of my slides for consideration is, what does it mean for how we train up practitioners in teacher education or in the case of uh, early years practitioners in any of the courses and programmes that, uh, that, that, that they engage in. I think it's, a, it's an area that seems to have waned a lot in recent years from my own experience of teacher education. Uh, and I think, I think you're right to put your finger on it. I think we need to, if we are genuinely going to have a system that recognises prog uh, progress and achievement in the widest sense, then the area of child development has to be something that figures more prominently. That's not to say that it doesn't in the eyes of some uh, and in some institutions at the moment, but I do think that I would say maybe even over the last five or 10 years, it's certainly in Scotland anyway, I think 
I think, understanding of child development has waned to a degree. I think it's been improved uh, a lot uh, with the introduction of some of the new courses and programmes that higher education have been offering and preparing folk to work in early learning and childcare. Uh, but I'm not convinced that it's necessarily followed through into primary. And as I say, I think it's got implications for how we, how we prepare teacher education programmes in primary and also the professional learning that's offered uh, for, for practitioners in primary and in secondary. I think what's concerning is, is also the wide discrepancies that happen across even Wales, you know, where some authorities have part-time nurseries, some authorities have teacher-led nursery provision, some have non-teacher. It, it, it's that, as you say, that emphasis perhaps on initial teacher training and making sure that you know, the emphasis is there on those early years with those children who, who need to develop those skills that they won't get elsewhere. Yeah, and, and we've had a very similar experience in Scotland. It used to be, uh, when I had responsibility for early years inspections many moons ago, it used to be that a good number of uh, nursery provision had a, had a, a qualified teacher uh, within that nursery mm. and then many authorities moved to uh, nurseries and early learning centres and early childcare centres having access to a qualified teacher uh, and that basically meant that you know that, that once in a blue moon uh, a qualified teacher uh, showed up and that, that kind of gave them the cover that was required from the from the policy point of view so but I think I think part of the cultural shift, Simon, uh, needs to be that, as I say, the value is, is genuinely given to what happens in early years and early learning and uh, ensuring that staff are, are, are well provided for and well ready to, uh, to, to have that kind of expertise that's required in child development. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, for that, for that question. Um, Ken? There are so many questions coming in from so many different sort of areas of education. I think that really is reflective, think of um, how it stimulated the conversations within the rooms. So um, I'm going to move to Michelle Kurzweil next. She has a question around digital technology and the balance for Generation Alpha. So Michelle, over to you. Uh, Trevor. Good morning, Ken. Um, we were talking about health and well-being in, in our group and um, in the context of Generation Alpha and, you know, the suggestion that that generation will be completely immersed in digital technology, but also recognising learning and well-being in that human paradigm. Um, what We'd really welcome your thoughts on how learning providers strike the balance between responding to the digital needs and that feedback from those learners on how they would like to be taught in terms of digital pedagogies, tools, technologies, etc. But then the impact of that digital world on their health and well-being, you know, and we were just very much talking about, you know, who, how much, how, how much digital responsibility is sitting with learning providers, whether that's schools, youth work, post-16, etc. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a question, uh, Michelle, that I've been asked a good few times. Uh, I, mean, I, I take the view that uh, you know the digital technology should be should be a facilitator for learning, uh, uh, and at the end of the day, a lot of learning is actually 
a social activity. I mean, the most effective, going back to my own days as an inspector in Scotland, you know, the best learning and teaching takes place in where, where there is that well-developed relationship between the teacher and the, and the learner. And it's one of the reasons I said why I chose not to go down the road of creating a curriculum and assessment body, because as I say, it felt, I felt it missed out the important bit about learning and teaching. So I think it needs to be done in a sensible way. Uh, I don't think there is an absolute balance, uh, but I think these young people are coming to school much more digitally competent uh, than, than has been the case in the past. And actually, in truth, are probably more digitally, digitally competent than many of the teachers in the schools. So there's a question there, I think, for professional learning of teachers and how we prepare, as I suggested in the presentation, how we prepare uh, our teacher education programmes to ensure that at the very least there is cognizance of the types of learning, uh, some of which are digitally orientated, that Generation Alpha uh, themselves uh, are anticipating much more so uh, than in the past. I, I, uh, when I worked at GTC Scotland as the chief exec, I was I was going to a meeting in the centre of Edinburgh on the bus one day, and I was watching this mother sitting with a young child, no more than three, on her knee, and the mother was sitting reading a kind of glossy magazine, and the wee girl was trying to swipe the page, and she was saying to her mum. Mummy, it won't swipe. It won't swipe. And I thought, you know, there is there is a classic example of the, the kind of technologically orientated young person that's very much, uh, you know, in, in our preschool settings, in our primary settings, and increasingly, I think, in our secondary settings. So I don't think it's a case of it's a balance, but I think as long as we recognise that learning, that the, the, the very best learning uh, really is, uh, I think, uh, uh, about relationships. And it's entirely appropriate for young people to, to go online and to do some uh, activities online. But I do think it has to be, there has to be a balance of sorts. And for some activities, that will be perhaps more digital than face-to-face -face and engaging with a, a professional teacher. In other cases, it will be the other way around. So, but uh, I, I'm certainly not advocating digital per se. Uh, and in fact, there's a really interesting, uh, there's a very interesting thing that was written. In fact, I've got a, a note of it somewhere. Yeah, it's uh, Angus, Angus Fletcher. He's a Scottish professor. He's a professor of neuroscience. And he's very critical of technology and artificial intelligence and, and all the rest of it. And he actually says uh, artificial intelligence is a pipe dream. It will never achieve the same intelligence as humans because computers run on logic, not the brain's story system. So he sees the, the brain as being about narrative. Technology and artificial intelligence will only ever be as good as the humans instructing it. It can run an assembly line, but it can never invent something. It can't imagine a story. Uh, it works in the permanent present. It can't understand the concepts of past and future, so they can never plan or be imaginative. And I was, I was quite struck by that. I just came across it for something completely different. I just happened to have it in my table here. Uh, and I think that kind of sums up how, how I see technology. I think it's got a place, 
but I do think genuinely that uh, you know that, that, that something that's a bit more hybrid uh, is is probably going to have to be the answer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lacan. Thank you, Michelle, for the uh, for the question. Apologies, there was a follow-up, but we've got so many questions and so little time, and I'm really keen to bring in a, a, another couple of questions before we, we finish this particular Q&A. Um, I've got a question that comes from the secondary school sector now. Um, Meyer, Meyer Hughes. Well, well Ken. Um, we had a bit of discussion around the, um, the bottom-up approach yeah. and, and how we can make that work. Um, how do we build that trust into the system and how enable then us as school leaders um, to feel that ownership, um, to have the creativity um, and to feel that we can actually feed up the system? Um, it's quite challenging, I think, isn't it? How, how, how could we do that? Yeah, but, well, you, you need two things for that, Mayor. Uh, I think you need... Uh, you need agency, first of all, and that needs to come from the top. You need to genuinely have a system that encourages and promotes uh, agency. And you also have to have a trust in the system. I mean, you used the word trust yourself there. You need to have a trust in the system that what comes from the bottom up is of, is of value. And I, I think that, uh, I think we're still, certainly in Scotland anyway, I think we're still well away from that. There have been attempts to empower head teachers and teachers uh, at the grassroots level, but what it's basically led to has been uh, more responsibility and more accountability and not genuine uh, empowerment. Uh, so I think, I think the, the culture shift that I talk about uh, at the government level has to be one that recognises the expertise that exists on the ground and for, as I say, teachers and practitioners, head teachers, to genuinely have the agency to, to make decisions that are appropriate to their own context. I mean, one of the things that always struck me as an inspector was every head teacher you went in to inspect told me about the uniqueness of their school. And, and they were absolutely right. You know, I mean, we've got two and a half thousand primaries and about 360 secondaries in Scotland, and they are all unique. But I think... It, it, for me, it's part of the cultural shift, and it's also about having the confidence, teachers having the confidence, and head teachers having the confidence to 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 take empowerment on board, and uh, and genuinely uh, you know create the kind of conditions for learning that are appropriate to their own school, uh, and feeding uh, feeding the feeding the policy from the bottom up. So what one of one of my, my, one, my recommendation around the national agency was an agency that, that worked with folk at the sharp end and on an ongoing basis, so a change-ready system, one that anticipates change and prepares for it, a change-ready system would then use what's coming from the grassroots to feed into policy. And rather than at the moment, which is certainly in a Scottish context, it's very often a knee-jerk reaction to something uh, it might be PISA, but it could be a whole host of other things. Uh, where what what is what is fed down the way is uh, I would say a hodgepodge because they're all well-meaning policies, but there's no coherence to them. So a very fragmented policy landscape. Whereas 
I think if we can get a, this notion of a bottom-up hierarchy and a filter through a national agency, which is what I'm proposing for Scotland in my report, I think, first of all, we get better policy. I think the second thing is we get better coherence to that policy. And the third big benefit, particularly for head teachers, is that the clarity of understanding around what the expectations are of those policy areas is much better than it currently is. Because one of the issues at the moment that came through very strongly from head teachers I spoke to was a lot of the workload and a lot of the, the angst that they, that, that, that they have is because of the incoherence to policies that exist at the national government level and sometimes also at the local authority level. So I think it is, it is about building confidence as well as building trust. But I think fundamentally it's about the government and the civil servants, uh, you know, releasing some of the kind of shackles that they currently place on the system and allowing schools and head teachers to, to, to make decisions and to have the confidence to make decisions based on their own professional expertise. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mayer, for, for that question. And again, thank you very much again for that for, for the response. Um, we've got literally a few seconds to squeeze in one final question, and uh, I've been advised it's seconds only, Ken. So um, could we get Lucy Lucy Murdoch on the screen? Lucy has a, a question. So, Lucy, just we've got a few seconds left, so if we can keep it as relatively uh, brief as possible, um, that, that would be great. It could be as simple as yes and no. Um, I was just wondering, Ken, whether any of your research looked into the FE sector at all, and if so, whether you were able to provide an overview of that analysis. Well, the, answer, the simple answer, Lucy, is yes. And when I was Chief Inspector, I had the responsibility for uh, the further education sector for a number of years. So, uh, so, so the answer is yes. I mean, I think one of the things that we have done fairly well in Scotland is in the senior phase of secondary, the articulation with the further education sector or what is increasingly been referred to as the tertiary sector in Scotland because about 25% of higher education awards are actually delivered through the college sector, the FE sector in Scotland. Uh, I think the transition for between the senior phase of school and the FE sector has come a long way in recent years, it's got an awful lot further to go, it has to be said. But uh, uh, the, the, the work that's been done to try and encourage better links between secondary schools and FE colleges uh, has, has begun to benefit uh, young people so that you will find in Scotland uh, a number of young people in secondary schools who, who are undertaking foundation apprenticeships, for example, as part of their school curriculum, uh, or who are undertaking some of their learning in a college setting, as opposed to uh, a school setting, uh, and I, I, you know, you're asking specifically about the evidence. Uh, I, I did, I did a fair number of interviews with uh, lecturers within the FE sector uh, as part of my, uh, as part of my engagement, and the report on the consultation, which was that middle one of the three that I showed in one of my slides, you'll, you'll get some feedback from, from what they 
I say in that. I mean, they certainly were very keen, uh, I know for a fact, they were very keen to strengthen those links between the senior phase of school and what is offered by way of uh, uh, courses and programmes in the FE sector. Yeah, thank you, Lucy de Chorian. Thank you very much for that question. And I'm afraid that's all the time we've got uh, for questions. With my apologies to everybody who did ask a question uh, that we weren't able to um, um, to sort of uh, put a put to you can today. Um, it's been thoroughly uh, thought provoking, very interesting from my own point of view. Thank you very much um, for my um, presentation and the responses. Diolch, Trevor. Diolch, Diolch, Fawr iawn i chi gyd am y Thank you all for your questions. I'm going to ask Ken now to close um, with his uh, short summary. Diolch, Ken. Thanks, Tegwyn, and thanks to everyone who's participated. I mean, I, I think education systems, particularly in the, in the Western world, but worldwide, are really at a point in time where we we need to take this opportunity to, to think very seriously, as you have begun to do in Wales, but to think very seriously over a timescale that is more than just a few years. I think we need to create an education system, as I hope we will do in Scotland and you will do in Wales, to create an education system that, that genuinely looks not just to the current generation of young people in our schools, but to their children as well. And I do think we've got a closing door on that. Uh, I think we've got a, a window of probably no more than five years to, to put in place the infrastructure and the culture and thinking that's required to create the kind of continuous improving education system that bases its changes on what is working well and what, what society requires uh, as it changes very dramatically. And to look very seriously at what we value uh, in, our, in, in the learning that we offer our children and young people, because I think that will change significantly. I think it is already. I think it will continue to. And if we don't, if we assume that the status quo, certainly in Scotland, which is a very examination-driven system and a system where the middle ground between policy and practice uh, has a lot of resource, not all of which is sufficiently well used, then I think we'll be doing a huge disservice to the teaching profession. But more importantly, we'll be doing a huge disservice to the current generation and the next generation of learners. So. I'm pleased that you felt that this has been both a provocation and also thought provoking uh, because that was really the intention of it. And uh, as I say, I will be in Wales uh, in a couple of weeks time speaking at the Askell event. And if any of you are around at that, certainly happy to engage further with you. Gobeithion eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, Podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth a cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.